Tonight we embark on a, a careful study of the life of Rahab in the book of Joshua. If a Christian is allowed to have favorite biblical characters, she's my absolute favorite. To say she had a, a rough background is an understatement. I feel a, a kinship with her. I have a very similar family history. On my mom's side of the family, there were drunks, horse thieves, and liars. One forebear died drunk, face down in the Kayamishi River under suspicious circumstances. Another was shot accidentally by his brother. Another did time for murder. My grandfather, Roy Haskell Moore, was a Rahab, the first convert in his family for as far back as we can tell. But things get worse on my dad's side. On the Robin's side, criminals and drunks, and at the funerals of my grandfather and grandmother, multiple cousins came in leg irons accompanied by prison guards. One of them died in the prison hospital. When I look at my family tree, it's not really too encouraging. But I have better reasons for encouragement than my genealogy. And tonight we're going to meet a very similar character. You're going to need your Bible open to Joshua 2, but we also will consult the New Testament tonight, seeing what the New Testament teaches us about Rahab. Let's seek the help of the Lord now. O blessed Lord, who has caused all of the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us now to hear them. Read them, learn them, inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of eternal life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me remind you just a little bit about the context that we find when we open Joshua chapter 2. Israel is massed some two to five million strong on the east side of the Jordan River. I don't know if you grew up like I did watching John Wayne cowboy and Indian movies. They were my favorites with, with my dad, and there was always a scene in every John Wayne movie. It was just part of the script, and if he did hundreds of movies, this scene was in 99% of them, but John Wayne would, for some reason, have to take cattle and uh, a helpless woman through a narrow gorge. And during that movie, you knew what was coming because the music, the soundtrack, would get ominous. In fact, there would be tom-toms beating on the soundtrack. And when John Wayne would look up on the ridge above him on the gorge, he would see just hundreds of Indians on either side. And you knew what was coming, a, a huge, massive fight. Well, when the Canaanites looked across the Jordan River, they knew what was coming because there they saw Two million and more stretched out across the riverbanks of the Jordan River. Israel had been supernaturally delivered from Egyptian bondage. Then they've wandered in the wilderness for almost 40 years due to their faithlessness. But now that faithless, disobedient generation of Israelites have, have died off all except for Joshua and Caleb. And so now it's time for Israel to enter the promised land. The problem is this. The promised land is packed with angry Canaanites who have no intention of giving their land to Israel. They hate the God of Israel and they hate his people and they're not about to give up their land without a fight. So as Israel is massed on the east side of the Jordan River, Joshua chooses two spies. If you're looking at your text, you'll see this information in verse 1. Joshua chooses two spies to go in and spy out the land. Why only two? You'll remember that 40 years earlier, there had been 12 spies who'd gone into the promised land, and only two were faithful. 
Joshua and Caleb. And so Joshua chooses two faithful men. He has to choose at least two. He can't send one man alone because he's looking for a report. And so in order to have a report that, that weighs something, he has to follow the biblical law of evidence. He has to send two men, two or more men, because by the word of two or more men, every fact will be confirmed. So Joshua sends these brave, wise, faithful spies to scout out the other side of the Jordan, the Canaan side, specifically the city of Jericho, the first city that Israel would encounter once they entered Canaan. Jericho, if you don't know anything about the city, was an oasis. It's filled with palms, with watering holes. It was a lush spot in the desert. And the city was marked by massive circular walls around the city. And they had a unique feature, two sets of walls, an inner wall and then an outer wall. And Jericho was strategic because the Jordan was easier to cross here than at most places. Jericho was at a crossroads of trade routes and, and an elaborate road system. And to capture Jericho, if you could... It was thought to be impregnable, but if you could, you could drive a wedge into Canaan because if you look at the maps in the back of your Bible, what you'll notice on that map is Jericho sits right at the center of Canaan from a north-south axis. And so if you could conquer Jericho, you could push through and you could divide and conquer. You could drive a wedge into Canaan, dividing the country in half. So look back at your text in verse 2. The two Israelite spies come in at night. And immediately the leaders of Jericho know the king's spy network is doing his job, especially the spy network of these two cities, Jericho and Gilgal, that are at the entryway of Canaan. So it's not like these two men can can sneak in unnoticed. Everybody knows they're in town. And so a delegation from the king is sent to Rahab's house, her house of ill repute. And they came with orders from the king that she must hand over her foreign guests. Remarkably, Rahab took the side of the foreigners. While the Canaanite police were outside knocking on her door and demanding entrance in the king's name, look at verse 6, Rahab swiftly, swiftly moved the two Israelite spies to a hiding place on the flat roof of her house. And she answers the king's delegation at her door by affirming that the Israelite man had indeed come to her. Men were always coming to her house. But she didn't report them immediately because she didn't know, she says in verse 4, she didn't know where they came from. And she she proceeds to tell the king's soldiers they had arrived too late, that these two men had already left. And finally, with all slyness, look at verse 5. She advises the king's delegation to pursue the foreigners at once since they might be able to overtake them. And notice where she sends them. She sends them on a wild goose chase. Look at verse 7. She sends the king's delegation back towards the Jordan River. And this makes sense. You would think, well, yeah, when the spies leave, they'll head back towards the Jordan and cross it and go back to their camp. But you're going to have to go all the way down to verse 16 to see where she actually sent them. Look where she sent them. She sent them in the other direction to the mountains until the heat cooled down. She's a smart woman. She took her life in her own hands to protect these strangers, these two men she's never met, foreigners. And of course, the king's messengers, when they come to Rahab's doors, they don't suspect that she sent them on a fool's errand in the least. And so they, they take the course she advised and they, they run towards the Jordan River to try to catch up to these two men. 
Never did any of the king's delegation suspect Rahab in the least of siding with these Israelites. Oh, you know Rahab. All the men knew Rahab. Good old Rahab. She wouldn't steer us wrong. She's a a good Canaanite girl. And what you see in the first few verses of Joshua chapter 2 is you see a phenomenal example of the hand of God's providence. Think of how we use the word providence. You're almost in a car wreck, and after you come screeching to a stop and you check and make sure that you're still breathing, you turn to whoever's in the car with you and you say, whew, that was providential. Well, my friends, let me remind you, everything is providential. There's no such thing as, well, that was not providential. Remember what our confession says in chapter 5 on providence? Listen to these words. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most high and holy providence. Everything is providential since our sovereign Lord is upholding, directing, disposing, and governing every act of every creature. It's just that we're usually amazed at how God weaves events together for his own glory and our good. Lost men have a version of this. You've probably heard it at work or maybe a family member. And you'll hear after something amazing happens, they'll shake their head and say, Oh man, I believe everything happens for a reason. That sounds intellectual and even spiritual, vaguely so, on, your, on their part. But that's your opening to leap in and say, oh, I agree. I believe everything happens for a reason, too. But we don't have to be agnostic about what that purpose is, since the Bible clearly says that God is working all things together for the good of his elect and his own glory. So instead of being mystical, we should say, yes, everything does happen for a reason. The reason is God sovereignly decreed it, and that will bring him the maximum glory. And so let's look at God's providence in action in Jericho. Let's find the one person in this massive megacity of Jericho. Let's find the one person in Jericho who wouldn't immediately turn in the two spies. How did that happen? Was it just their lucky day, these two men? No. The spies connected by God's design with this woman for amazing reasons. And by the way, Joshua didn't need information about Jericho. If you're thinking... Wow, his, his, his plan to get information about, you know, the armaments and the soldiers and, and where, where the king's palace room is, that's going to be threatened if, if these two spies get caught. Joshua doesn't need information about Jericho. He's not going to conquer Jericho on the basis of information. He's going to conquer Jericho on the basis of supernatural intervention. Now, there are two immediate reasons, or two strong reasons, why God brings these spies to Rahab's door. There's an immediate reason and a long-term reason. Think with me about these providential reasons at work. The immediate reason why God brings these two spies to this door is so Rahab would be saved. You're thinking, Carl, how do you mean that? Saved how? Saved in any way you want to imagine. Let me point out at least three ways that she'll be saved. Rahab will be saved physically from death. When the Israelite army comes in like a flood a few days later and slaughters every resident, she will be spared. She'll be saved. She'll be saved covenantally. She and her household, 
If you listen very carefully as Pastor Dodds was, was reading, what she demands is she demands a family covenant of safety, which is God's typical method. Think of the New Testament example of the, this Gentile jailer, the Philippian jailer, when he asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? Paul will not let him think individualistically. Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You only by yourself. No. Paul says, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. And that's exactly what we'll see with Rahab. She demands it and she is saved, she and her household. And then there's another way she's saved. She's saved eternally, as we just read in our New Testament reading, according to Hebrews 11.31. And so in whatever sense you want to think, Rahab, the immediate reason why these two spies come to her door is so that she might be saved. What was needed, contrary to military information, was the arrangement by which Rahab would be saved when Jericho fell. So right now you're playing mental chess, as some people do with the preacher. Carl, are you telling me that God will bring heaven and earth and bring a couple of men who may not have even spoken Rahab's language, that he'll bring foreigners to the house of a prostitute so she of all people and her household could be saved? Are you saying that God will, will manipulate national, military, geopolitical events just for the redemption of one person? Yes, exactly. In fact, this situation is a foreshadowing to another one exactly like it. Keep your finger here and look at John chapter 4 and look at the greater Joshua. And we're told in John chapter 4, we're told in John 4 verse 3, he, speaking of Jesus, John 4 verse 3, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. He needed to. It was not that the Samaritan route was the only way to go to Galilee. Usually another way was taken. In fact, Jews usually studiously avoided going through Samaria. It was rather that God had one of his elect sheep residing in that city. And so Jesus said, not one of those sheep shall ever perish. And so Jesus enters Samaria to save this immoral, foreign, non-Jewish woman. Let me say that again. And if you're quick on the pickup, you'll see what's going on. Jesus enters Samaria to save this one immoral, foreign, non-Jewish woman. In the same way, the, the spies, the two spies were sent to Jericho to save Rahab, an immoral, foreign, non-Jewish woman. It was a down payment. It's a foreshadowing. It's a type of what the greater Joshua will do. And this is God's way, by the way. If he has his elect in the most God-forsaken places, he'll raise up a missionary and send them there so that his beloved elect might be saved. The spies didn't know this, of course, any more than we know the outcome when God's providence sends us on some errand. But from the heavenly angle, this was God's sovereign purpose. God had already been at work in Rahab's heart, as we're going to see in just a moment, leading her to saving faith, and now he's He's sending messengers to confirm her faith and physically save her. It's fascinating that the first character in this great book, rather other than Joshua himself, is Rahab. And the first story, first real story, is her story. 
But as we said, the Lord had at least a couple of purposes for sending the spies to Rahab's house. He has an immediate purpose so that she might be saved in, in any way that you think, physically, covenantally, materially, spiritually. But he has a long-term purpose as well. Rahab had to be safely preserved because God had ordained from before the foundation of the world that she would be the ancestor of the Messiah, the greater Joshua. When you read those genealogies, and oftentimes you read past them in places like Matthew chapter 1, and you read the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ, and you, you come to Matthew 1 verse 5, and we're told that one of the ancestors of our Lord Jesus was Rahab. God will crush a whole city, but preserve one woman of ill repute so the messianic line won't be threatened. A few initial thoughts on Rahab that you should know. Now, in this this moment, when we see this woman, when we enter the city gates of Jericho and we meet her, if we were going to say, let's today find the least likely woman in Jericho, in fact, all over the Middle East, let's find the least likely woman we could to be the great-grandmother of the Messiah. I can say without much fear of contradiction that Rahab would be the least likely recipient of God's favor. She doesn't just have three strikes against her. She's got a dozen strikes against her. But let me just point out three reasons why you ought to be shocked that the Lord is going to, Lord, you're going to save her? Lord, there are so many better people than her. Lord, do you know what she does for a living? Lord, she's a, she's a scum. Think of a few strikes she has against her. The first is she's a prostitute. Rahab did this all day, every day. Her vocation, her paying job was to be degraded and used by men for sex, for pay. Some commentators have tried to soften this by saying, well, she wasn't a prostitute. She was more like an innkeeper or a hostess. But in both Hebrews 11 and James chapter 2, it's beyond contradiction because the New Testament always calls her Rahab the harlot. She's known for her sexual immorality. You know, red light in the window, Rahab. Second strike she has against her. She's a Gentile. Or as many Israelites would say, she's a dog. This was actually a much larger barrier, a liability and a handicap than the first strike she has against her. Now, I want you to think about what this means when we say she's a Gentile and why this makes her very unlikely to be the great-grandmother of the Messiah. I want you to see how the New Testament speaks of Gentiles and those who don't have all the covenantal advantages of Israelites. Keep one finger here and look at Romans chapter 3. And I want to remind you all the advantages that the Jews had. In Romans chapter 3, Paul is making the argument that Israel had great advantages. Listen to what he says. Romans 3 verse 1 and 2, What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God? And so Paul's saying, Here's the first big advantage, the the gigantic, the 800-pound gorilla advantage that Israelites had. They've got the Bible. They've got the written word of God. They have the oracles of God. And in fact, at this moment, 
As Rahab is entertaining these two, these two Jewish men, Joshua is sitting back in camp across the Jordan, and he may be holding the Pentateuch, the first five books, the scroll in his hand. And think about what he has by having the word. He's got Genesis 3.15, the promise of a redeemer. He's got Genesis 15 and 17, the Abrahamic covenant and the truth of justification by faith alone. And he has it all in writing. Rahab has none of it. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 9. Paul says, The fathers have the covenants, the law, the tabernacle, the promises, the fathers, and he keeps going on and on. And so let's talk about what can you list in any Israelite's column? All of those things, the oracles of God, the promises, the glory, the worship service. What can you list in Rahab's column? Nothing. Ephesians 2 sums it up this way. Speaking of every Gentile before the coming of Christ, she was a stranger to the covenant and without hope. This is who Rahab is. But a third strike against her. She's not just any old Gentile. She's a Canaanite in the land of Canaan, a people so wicked they'd been singled out for for judgment as being ripe by God 400 years earlier in Genesis 15. And the Lord had said to Abraham, just, just wait. I'm going to wait to judge them until they're ripe, until they're due. Well, now their wrath is due. <clears throat> so here's this woman. Let's stack it up. What are all of the strikes she has against her? She's a prostitute. She's a Gentile. And she's a Canaanite. She doesn't look much like a prospect for salvation or to be the heiress of the Messiah. And I hope this doesn't shock you. You'll see her in heaven. As you and I are seated in the back, you'll catch a glimpse. There's Abraham. There's Moses. There's David. And there, who's that woman? It's Rahab. Despite all of the, the disadvantages she had, she was marked by a living faith. And if there's anything I want you to see tonight, I want to demonstrate to you from the text that this woman was saved and she had saving faith. And you can see it in the text. The first thing you need to know is the saving nature of her faith. It's a true and living faith. You may not be able to say with any certainty that the person seated next to you right now has saving faith, but you can say so about Rahab. That's why she's included in the, the roll call of faith, the hall of faith in Hebrews eleven thirty one. We're not speculating here. We know by divine revelation we will meet her in heaven, and she's listed as one of the giants of faith in Hebrews 11. Now, I want you to look at the substance of her faith because you and I might learn something about how to be saved and what it means to be saved. Look carefully with me at the substance of her faith, what she believes. Hope you have your Bible open to Joshua 2. First of all, she believes in the person of Jehovah. Look what she says in verse 11. I'm quoting her words here. She says, as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. She doesn't cite Baal or any other God. She, she speaks of Jehovah. That's who she believes in. 
And then she knows he's living and true. She uses his name in verse 11, not, not that of Baal or Ashtaroth. She's an exclusivist. That's why she says, the Lord your God, he is God. And then she believes in, and this is where our breath gets taken away. And I'm going to explain why in just a moment. This is astounding that this Gentile prostitute will do this. She believes in the promises of God. She doesn't have a right to them, but she believes in them. Look at verse 9. She says to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. This is before Israel triumphs. Think about this. Israel doesn't have the land right now. They're on the other side of the Jordan. They've been wandering around for 40 years. She says, I know. It's a word of intellectual certitude. I know that the Lord has given you the land. She doesn't know many promises, but she knows this one, that Jehovah had promised to give the land to Israel. And the promise wasn't even given to her. It was given to Israelites. She's a Gentile. But she's thinking, can I just edge in there with you people? You have promises. We have nothing. Can I I just take my stand with you, you people who have the promises of God? But there's even more. Look at verse 10 and 11. She believes in the dominion and the sovereignty of God. In verse 10, she says, We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og. As soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. And now notice what she does in verse 10. Look carefully. She says, I believe that the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. She doesn't run to a naturalistic explanation like, well, you came through during the dry season. And in verse 11, she affirms, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. She believes, when you read verses 10 and 11, she believes that God is in control, he makes promises, and he's sovereign. Now at this point, and I hope you are, I hope you're saying, what is the root of her faith? Where did her faith come from? And this is simple. Rahab is just like you and I. Faith comes by hearing. And we know that from the text. Look at verse 10 and 11. She says in verse 10, we have heard. And again in verse 11, and as soon as we heard these things, she'd heard. She doesn't have much. She doesn't have the covenants and promises. Those belong to Israel, but she has ears. And undoubtedly, there was much about the faith and history of Israel that Rahab didn't know. But she had heard only of God's Sovereign mighty acts in delivering the Israelites from Egypt. And the victory they'd won over Canaanite nations east of the Jordan. But she had ears. And she had heard what God had done and she believed on him as a result. Now I want you to think about who her preachers were. From whom had Rahab heard these tales of the God of Israel? Probably from the men who passed through her establishment. They're standing around talking. If you heard what happened in Egypt, one man might ask. Then he would proceed to tell the, how God sent plagues on the Egyptians, the flies, the rivers of blood, the death of the firstborn. Another customer would say, did you hear what happened at the Red Sea? The God of the Israelites parted the waters so they could cross over on dry land. And then he drowned the entire Egyptian army. And Rahab was taking it all in. 
what seemed like small talk to others was good news of hope for her. Think of the contrast between Rahab and that generation of Israelites that died in the wilderness. Those Israelites had not only heard, but they were eyewitnesses of the mighty works of Jehovah. They'd heard the audible voice of God from atop Mount Sinai. They saw the manna every day, but they didn't enter into the promised land because of unbelief. My friends, will you get this into your head tonight? Seeing miracles doesn't give saving faith. Listen to that carefully. If it did, every one of those Israelites in generation one would have been saved. Seeing miracles doesn't give saving faith. Faith comes by hearing. You can identify with Rahab tonight because you've never seen manna fall and you've never seen the Red Sea part, but you have heard the word. Rahab is the patron saint of all who have never seen a miracle, but they've heard the word. Think of the marked contrast between Rahab and her fellow Canaanites. Look at verse 9 through 11. She says in verse 10 and 11, we have heard. All of her fellow Canaanites had heard the same reports about Jehovah, but it didn't produce faith in them, just terror. Why did Rahab believe and not all these others in Jericho who'd heard the same stories? Because she was a recipient of particular electing sovereign grace. She was a recipient of God's sovereign favor. Over the next few weeks, we're going to dig deeper into the saga of Rahab, and you're going to identify with her more and more. But I want to make three applications to us this evening, an invitation, a warning, and a rebuke. First of all, this saga is an invitation to all who've not embraced the gospel and united to Christ. And so you're here tonight, and you say, Christ, I don't have any church background, and so Christ wouldn't receive me. My friend Rahab had no church background. She'd never seen a Bible, never sung a hymn, never heard a sermon, yet she trusted in the living God and was embraced by him for salvation. You say, but Carl, you don't understand. I have a messy moral background. So did Rahab. But Jesus says, the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. You say, Carl, I don't really know much about theology or about the Bible. Do you know this, that you're a sinner? Do you know that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners? That he's lived a sinless life and died a substitutionary death for sinners and he's risen from the dead to go and prepare a place for them in heaven? Then you know what is necessary. Why do you delay? Tonight I would plead with you, just like Rahab, to hear, repent, believingly run to Jesus. Second, this saga is a warning. It's a warning to everyone who's heard and heard and heard and yet persist in unbelief. Rahab had no Bible. She just had third and fourth hand reports about Jehovah and his promises and she responded in faith. Some of you in this room have heard so much biblical truth that you've gorged on it. Yet still you refuse to act by repenting and believing. You've heard truckloads of belief, yet you go on in doubt and unbelief. I would speak to youth and children right now in this congregation. You heard more in your Sunday school class this morning than Rahab had ever heard. 
how great will be your condemnation if you perish in unbelief. You're without excuse. Do not say, Carl, if, if I have a little more data, I, I need more proof. My friend, you've had light in every opportunity. This saga serves as a warning to everyone who's heard and heard and yet persists in unbelief. Finally, this saga is a rebuke. It's a rebuke to all those who say they've exercised saving faith, but they refuse to publicly stand with the people of God. Rahab took the side of the Israelite spies against her king and countrymen, exposing herself to certain and awful punishment if she'd been found out. Listen to me. True saving faith means a break, a clean break, a hard break with all worldly connections and a new loyalty to God and his people. Don't say to me, Carl, I I do have saving faith, but I'm afraid to let that be known in my school or on my job because I'm afraid it might open me up to ridicule. It opened Rahab up to the prospect of sure execution. But she took her stand with Christ and his people. This text is a rebuke to those who say, I want Christ just not publicly. Let's pray together. Our Father, how we delight to hear again that in every generation, in every nation, tribe, and tongue, that men and women are rightly related to you by faith. And so we plead with you tonight for the free gift of saving faith, that you would chase away all doubts and objections and unbelief. We would embrace your promises for eternal life. And we thank you that you've perfectly preserved the saga of our ancestor Rahab in the faith. And we ask that you give us a like faith. We pray in the name of the object of her faith in ours. Even.